Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three of the spleen. And this will be our third and final part. And when we were finishing up part two, we were speaking about some of the processes that infiltrate the spleen. And I wanted to pick it up at that point. When you see a very large spleen, there are a number of things it can be. Obviously, it could be myelofibrosis. It could be thalassemia. But the really largest spleens are going to be things like CLL, just diffuse infiltration. So you have both a very large spleen, but if you look really hard, you can see the infiltration of the spleen as well. There's mass effect on the stomach. There are nodes in the portal cable space. Narrow windows can be helpful because then you see the nodes better, but you also see what I would call, let's say, a salt and pepper appearance to the spleen. And to me, that means splenic infiltration. Now, I have seen that with some non-malignant processes, but almost always is malignant. And when you look at this infiltration, to me, that's going to be lymphoma or leukemia. This was CLL. There it is very nicely shown again on the coronal view. You see the size of the spleen, and you see its infiltration. Again, CLL is my best diagnosis. Now, one thing to remember with things like leukemia or lymphoma, they can predispose to spontaneous rupture. If your spleen gets large enough and it's infiltrative, you can see spontaneous bleeding. So here's a patient with acute left upper quadrant pain, and this was a spontaneously bleeding in a patient with CLL. The patient had known CLL. Now, when you have acute pain, you can think about infarct, but bleeds and rupture are another possibility. You can see the blood around the spleen here, and as you track lower, there's active bleeding within the spleen. So again, one of the things that can occur as a complication of diffuse splenic infiltration is spontaneous rupture. So that's always something to consider. I mentioned earlier in part one of the talk about spontaneous rupture due to intrapancreatic or intrapancreatic pseudocysts that track into the spleen uh, and can cause with minor trauma spontaneous splenic rupture. But here's another one. So you see the act of bleeding. You see the infiltration of the tumor in the spleen. But, but this patient will end up with a splenectomy. There's blood beneath the liver. Here it is with cinematic rendering, very nicely showing the textural change and the infiltration of the patient's liver and the splenic involvement as well. Now, lymphoma is the most common malignant tumor of the spleen, primary malignant tumor, that is. It can be primary or diffuse. Splenic involvement is seen at presentation in about a third of all patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma and up to 40% of patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Lymphoma can infiltrate the spleen diffusely or can present as discrete nodules. Necrosis of lymphoma is rare. Again, discrete lesions, uh, one of the more common appearances. You can occasionally see infarction due to lymphoma, but that's fairly uncommon. Now, one of the things we look at, and I mentioned in the beginning, is if you're looking at the spleen and you see splenic lesions, in the differential diagnosis, it helps to look elsewhere. So I showed you in the last case, the patient had nodes in the portal cable space that pushed you to leukemia lymphoma. Processes that involve both liver and spleen, lymphoma is really good, and METs like melanoma, but also immunosuppressed patients when you have abscesses, we mentioned spleen, liver, and kidney, for example, and then sarcoid. I showed you this case before and made the point that sarcoid can look like metastatic disease or look like lymphoma. Multiple lesions, this was sarcoid. In most of the cases, sarcoid is not known when we suggest a diagnosis. Again, differential. Look at the patient's spleen in this case, multiple low-density lesions, classic 
for sarcoidosis, though maybe not specific. Here the spleen is enlarged, and you can see the multiple lesions. If the patient had a normal spleen and was immunosuppressed and now presented, you could consider abscesses, but otherwise that would be unlikely, and I would be thinking about what this was with sarcoidosis. Another example, sarcoid. You see the nodes, hilar subcarinal, and there's multiple splenic lesions. There are some nodes present. There's also a lesion in the right lobe of the liver. Here it is a few more views. Again, multifocal disease in the spleen. Sarcoid, very difficult diagnosis. And again, in the right history, you could say this looks like metastomy, this could be lymphoma. I can't really be 100% adamant that this is sarcoid just by looking at these images. But once you have the chest and you have the history, it can make it a lot easier. But again, that lymphoma versus sarcoid can be somewhat challenging. Another example, look at the infiltration of the spleen. How do I know that's not lymphoma? I think it's very difficult. Okay, age, history, the patient really isn't as sick. Uh, but, you know, you have to consider lymphoma in the differential diagnosis. Remember we mentioned age, so older patients, lymphoma is more common. African Americans three times more frequently involved by sarcoid than uh, uh, whites. Symptoms, fever, weight loss, fatigue, all sound like malignancy. And again, as we mentioned before, involvement of multiple organs at the same time uh, or just solitary involvement, but we have every organ, 94% of the liver. Often it's asymptomatic and often at best it's some hepatomegaly, but it's involved. So it's something to think about. Now we mentioned infection before. We spoke about liver abscesses in an earlier lecture. We talk about splenic abscesses. They're rare. Patients are typically immunosuppressed or they have a history endocarditis, recent uh, dental work, diverticulitis, there are a number of possibilities. But if a patient's immunosuppressed, bone marrow transplant, the febrile, you've got to be thinking about lungs, aspergillosis, candidiasis. You've got to be thinking about abscesses. Again, candidiasis or aspergillosis. And now you see multiple splenic lesions and you see multiple liver lesions. And you look back at an old scan, these lesions were not present previously multifocal abscesses. Make sure you look at the kidneys because they're commonly involved. Now, let's talk a little bit about vascular processes. Splenic artery aneurysms, pseudoaneurysms, are the two things we think about. Aneurysms are usually incidental findings, but pseudoaneurysms present with symptoms, including spontaneous bleeding and possible patient arrest. Patient splenic artery aneurysms are the third most common intra-abdominal aneurysm, up to 10% frequency, more common in women, but more likely to rupture in men. They're most commonly due to atherosclerotic disease, but we also talk about hypertension and portal hypertension. We talk about cirrhosis. We talk about liver transplantation and due to pregnancy. Splenic artery pseudoaneurysms, on the other hand, most likely are due to pancreatitis. It won't be the first episode, multiple episodes of pancreatitis. The pancreatic fluid erodes the vessel. Splenic artery pseudoaneurysms can easily rupture. It's a very important complication, but it may be caused by other things from post-operative to peptic ulcer disease as well. With splenic artery pseudoaneurysms, abdominal pain, melanoma, hemochezia, Pseudoaneurysms rupture in up to one-third of cases with mortality than approaching 90%. Some examples, classic splenic artery aneurysm, well-defined. Under 2 cm, people will probably just simply follow it. 
well opacified here in a patient with cirrhosis, portal hypertension, pre-transplant. We're always concerned in doing a transplant in these patients, could this cause or create problems? So it's something to think about. Sometimes it's hard to call splenic artery aneurysms because the splenic artery is so tortuous. But if you look carefully, you can see it. It's also important to remember splenic artery aneurysms often are not in isolation. So you want to look at the mesenteric vessels. This patient has a splenic artery aneurysm plus a GDA, and the GDA is more likely to cause problems. I mentioned splenic artery aneurysms can be calcified, but will opacify. Some can be calcified with no flow, but most of them are like this, rim calcification and opacification. Splenic artery aneurysms can be large. When they get very large, like this one, you can't embolize it, you're gonna resect it. Beautiful example of a huge splenic artery aneurysm, very nicely shown. Now I mentioned pseudoaneurysms. Patient with left upper quadrant pain, hypotensive. You see the pseudoaneurysm is mostly thrombosed, but you can see there's some blood around it. This patient had had prior pancreatitis. And pseudoaneurysms as a sequela of pancreatitis are not going to be uncommon. Just a beautiful example there. And here are the images are side by side. When you look at it, you say, where's the splenic artery? But if I do the reconstructions, you nicely can see the splenic artery. Now, sometimes I've seen cases like this one. This patient presented down. The patient had a CT scan, showed blood, but no reason. Patient came to Hopkins, he was a physician. But you can see here, how did they miss that large pseudoaneurysm? Well, what happened was the pseudoaneurysm was compressed by the blood. And so now with some of the blood resolving, we were able to see it. This was embolized and the patient went home. Patient was lucky because the patient had to be resuscitated and was fine. But you can imagine how this could rupture and that could uh, have a very good chance of being the patient's final event. Beautiful example of the extent of this process. Okay, very nicely shown showing you the pseudoaneurysm. Now every once in a while we can get fooled. This was sent in as a neuroendocrine tumor. And when you look at it, it kind of looks like a neuroendocrine tumor. It's not an accessory spleen, it's too bright. But then when you look at the reconstructions, you recognize that you're looking at, with that rim calcification, you're actually not looking at a neuroendocrine tumor, but you're looking at a splenic artery pseudoaneurysm aneurysm with rim-like calcification. This was resected, but the patient did not have a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. So you can see, and here's the images again, early and late, there's often overlap. We talk about the challenge of splenic lesions, uh, simulating pancreatic lesions. Here's an example of that. It's a splenic artery aneurysm simulating a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Now what else can we talk about? Infarcts, we talk about segmental or global. Segmental portions of the spleen can be multiple segmental or can be global where the entire spleen is involved. Causes, endocarditis, atrial fib, sickle cell disease, malignancies like lymphoma. CT appearance is usually classic. Wedge-shaped defects, whether it's spleen or liver or kidney, wedge-shaped is an infarct usually only involves a portion of the spleen and it can evolve over time. Here's a pretty much 70% of the spleen, large infarct present, well-defined, sharply marginated low density. And you can see it very nicely here. 
Here's an example of post-Whipple's procedure where there's now global infarction of the spleen, a rare complication of a Whipple's procedure, but there basically is no enhancement. Global infarction of the spleen, very nicely shown. Here's a patient with pancreatic cancer with recurrence, and now you see there's a large portion of the spleen that's infarcted. Very nicely shown. You can see the sharp margination. Sharp margination is one of the hallmarks of infarcts, particularly when you look toward venous phase imaging. And you can see it again, but you can see how large the infarct can be and how it involves, in this case, about two-thirds of the spleen. Just a very nice example and not a difficult diagnosis. Now, when you talk about things that give infarcts, we always mention sickle cell disease. Autoinfarction is common, and these are the patients with very tiny spleens, often a centimeter or even smaller. It's repeated infarcts. You can see the, the spleen is very dense. There's no magic. That's autoinfarction. Very dense spleen calcification beyond that is exceedingly, exceedingly rare. Another example of sickle cell disease with a calcified spleen, and typically the spleens are small. In patients with things like thalassemia or sickle thal, the spleens can be large, but in patients with SS disease, they're typically small. Another example where there's a moray pattern, but that's the permanent moray pattern. That's the patient's diffuse splenic calcifications. Here it is nicely shown in the coronal view, okay? Very nicely shown. Last thing to mention are abscesses. They're rare, but do occur. If they're not diagnosed, the patient can die. Risk factors, diabetes, alcoholism, and typically IV drug abuse. They're usually low density. I showed you before multiple abscesses in immunosuppressed patients, but this is a bit different. This is a patient who maybe had surgery, maybe had endocarditis. And again, it's a great, can simulate many things. Here's an example, fever. If I told you this was lymphoma, you would agree, but this was an abscess. Sometimes the thing, thing about uh, abscesses is the history is a bit better, more febrile, something like endocarditis, something that helps you. But if not, it's a tough call. This is a patient who had some unusual uh, infection from a toxin. Look at the spleen infarcted. There's abscesses present, a combination, and here's aspergillosis. Again, remember I told you, aspergillosis, candidiasis, immunosuppressed patients solitary to multiple lesions within the spleen due to infection. So we've gone through many different things. We've looked at a range of splenic lesions. We looked at some of the challenges. We looked at a lot of the information. And this article by Seward is good to look at. Patients with incidental splenic mass on imaging with the absence of malignancy, weight loss, fever, upper quadrant pain are highly likely to be benign no matter what. Follow-up or additional imaging is typically not warranted. Only if you're worrying about malignancy, if the patient has a known malignancy and you wonder, could this be part of that malignancy, then it's worthwhile. In patients with known malignancy with constitutional symptoms like left upper quadrant pain, then even if something's benign looking, it's probably worthwhile to think, am I missing something? So let's just summarize quickly. Lesion detection is critical, but lesion definition and determining the etiology of the lesion are particularly important. Since most splenic lesions will be left alone and are benign, we want to be able to recognize the ones that are leave alone versus the ones that something needs to be done. So very, very important. 
and again minimize unnecessary intervention minimize unnecessary exams and if you think about the process and the information that we've given you here today i think you're going to do a great job and with that i appreciate your attention and have a great day bye if you liked what you heard here today please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website ctss.com for lectures quizzes pearls and more also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.